Have you ever played the word game? Uh, word association. Somebody says a word and then you, you write down the first word that comes to your mind. <clears throat> and if you were to say uh, Christmas, what's the first word that comes to your mind? Maybe uh, sleigh bells, jingle bells, Christmas tree, whatever. Maybe grandma's cookies. But if you said birth of Christ, which is the celebration of Christmas, is the birth of Christ. What comes into your mind? Uh, Herald angels, shepherds, an inn, swaddling clothes. Sooner or later, you're going to hear the word Bethlehem. And 600 years before the birth of Christ, the Hebrew prophet Micah sounded the shofar of prophetic information and said, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from old, from everlasting. Skipping ahead 600 years, we read in the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Ju Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The place of Jesus' nativity was prophesied 600 years before it happened. A contemporary of Micah, the prophet Isaiah, also wrote, Behold, I will show you a sign. The virgin shall conceive and have a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. And Matthew interprets that for us, Emmanuel meaning God with us. In Matthew chapter 1 we read, So all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Father, I thank you for these prophecies. 600 years before Jesus was born, telling us the exact location of his birth and that he would be born of the virgin. A supernatural miracle to identify the reality of his identity. I thank you, Father, for Jesus, for who he is, for what he did for us. And I thank you that he is coming again in power and glory as Lord of Lords, and King of Kings, to receive unto himself those who are his own. Father, I pray this morning that the Holy Spirit 
would give free access to the hearts of each of us here this morning. And I pray the truth of your word would penetrate our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Micah's prophecy comes in the context of the days of Israel and its latter days of its kingdom period of time of great apostasy. And they had fallen into idolatry. And God had disciplined them over and over in his patience and his long-suffering and in his love for them. But they would not repent. They would not receive their, their Savior, their Lord, uh, as their own. They wanted to do their own thing. They were a stiff-necked people, the prophets say. And in chapter 1, verse 9 of Micah, they had come to the end of the road. And, and Micah said, or excuse me, the Lord said through Micah, your wound is incurable. And in chapter 4, verse 10, he says, for now you shall go from this city and to Babylon you shall go. You're going off into captivity. I'm going to rear noses in polytheistic idolatry so you can see what it really means to follow the gods as opposed to the Lord your God, your creator, who delivered you from Egypt and, and so on. That is the context that we find the prophecy of Micah. Because Micah here is saying by the Lord's direction, this is what's going on. You're going to Babylon. But not all is lost. Messiah is going to come. There is going to be a new day. And that's what this prophecy is about. But you, Bethlehem, three verses, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, 3, and 4. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Therefore he shall give them up until the time that he who is in labor has given birth, she who is in labor. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. And he, speaking of Messiah, shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now, meaning then, he shall be great to the ends of the earth. <clears throat> this prophecy is a classic mountaintop, what I call mountaintop vision prophecy. <clears throat> the prophet Micah didn't realize, I'm sure, all that he was prophesying as the Spirit of the Lord spoke through him in this prophecy, but we have 2,600 years of perspective to look back and see that verse 2 is referring to the first coming of Christ, and verse 4, the second coming of Christ. Micah could not have seen a 2,000-year gap between these two mountaintops, yet it is briefly referred to in verse 3. In Isaiah chapter 52, we read these words, speaking of the coming Messiah. It says that my servant shall deal prudently, and he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. And yet in the next chapter, chapter 53, verse 3, it says, this same person, the Messiah, would be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
In the days of Jesus, as they studied these prophecies, they couldn't figure it out. And they concluded, many of them concluded that the, the Spirit must have been speaking of two messiahs that are going to come. One who will deliver us spiritually and the other politically. They just couldn't figure it out. In fact, in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, it says the prophets inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. This is one of those instances where both comings of the Lord Jesus are referred to in one text. Beginning with verse 4 through the end of the chapter, the focus is on the second coming of Christ. Verse 2, the focus is on Christ's nativity. His first coming. And it's one of the most beloved and most quoted Christmas passages uh, among Christians. We're going to look at four things here in this text. The first is the, the place of his birth. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrata. Bethlehem, as Jacob mentioned to us two weeks ago, means Beth, house, Lehem, bread. House of bread. How appropriate that the one who would come as the bread of life would be born the house of bread, Bethlehem. And Ephrathah means fruitful. Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, Bethlehem, you're small, you're obscure, obscure, sort of a backwater village. Again, appropriately so, in keeping with the life of the one who came, meek and lowly, to serve rather than to be served and ultimately then to give his life as a ransom. So, how does it happen that a woman living 80 miles north in Galilee would give birth in Bethlehem on this exact time? Was this by divine design, or was it just some sort of coincidence? Well, I want to turn to Luke chapter 2, the Christmas story there. Beginning at verse 1, it says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, every one to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth into Galilee, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was, that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. The enrollment was decreed by Caesar Augustus. The enrollment was to be in one's hometown. Joseph was of the lineage of David, and the city of his nativity was Bethlehem. So, Joseph returns to the city of David, Bethlehem. Now, the decree in verse 1 was from Caesar Augustus, but it didn't take place until Quirinius was governor of Syria six years later. The decree was made before Mary was even a teenager. Was this just happenstance? Was this just a... Uh, a chance, 
Or was it divine design? Mary just happened to be nine months pregnant when Joseph went to be enrolled in, in Bethlehem of Judea. One might think it was just a coincidence, except 600 years previously, the prophet Micah decreed that Messiah would be born in the city of David, Bethlehem. Now, why is this important? We'll see in a little bit. Reading on, Yet out of you shall come forth the one to be ruler in Israel. Not just his place of birth, but the position of authority that is a part of who Jesus is. The one to be ruler in Jerusalem, and as Jeremiah says, the whole earth. I want to read for you these prophecies. The first is in Isaiah chapter 9. Verse 6, for unto us a child is born. Remember, Isaiah is the contemporary of Micah. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice for that time, from that time forward, even forever. When Jesus returns and establishes his millennial kingdom for a thousand years, it will be, as he rules from Jerusalem, just the introductory, inaugury phase of eternity where there will be a new heaven and a new earth because his kingdom and his reign will last, as it says here, forever and forever. And it will be not just it will be not just Israel, but the whole earth will be under his reign and under his rule. And we read the prophecy of Jeremiah chapter twenty three, verse five, who said, Behold, the days are coming, saith the Lord, that I will raise a raise to David a branch, capital B, referring to his offspring, earthly offspring referring to Jesus, a branch of righteousness, a king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. You plan to go to heaven when you die? Well, there's some good news and there's some bad news depending on what you're depending If you're depending on your good works and your self-righteousness and maybe your good looks, I don't know, whatever you're depending on won't cut it. You won't get there because we are all sinners separated from a holy God. What it took was an innocent sacrifice. There was only one person qualified, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was tempted with sin in all points, such as we, yet without, without sin. And he died as the innocent, spotless, blemishless Lamb of God, pictured in all of the Old Testament sacrifices for our sin. What we needed was a Savior. And apart from the Savior, there is no hope of eternal life in the presence of God in his heaven forever and forever and ever. And so, when you come to heaven's door and God asks you, why should I let you into my heaven? 
and you say, because I'm better than the next guy, or because I did all these good works, he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. The only way into God's heaven is through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. My righteousness is as filthy rags, it will never be enough, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ will be applied to my account because I have placed my faith in Jesus. He is my only hope of eternal life, and my trust is in him because he is the one, the only one who paid the purchase price of my salvation. The wages of sin is death for everybody unless our trust has been placed in Jesus who died in our place. God is a holy God and the wages of sin is death and that will happen in every case. It will happen in my case, but it was born by my Savior, the Lord Jesus. The Lord, our righteousness. His place of birth, Bethlehem. His position of authority will be as king of the, of the whole world. The righteous, the righteous king. The third thing I'd like to point to is just who is this Jesus? If we haven't figured it out by now, his person is eternal. It says in this text, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Jesus himself said, before Abraham was, I am. And I just want to declare to you here again, uh, well, before I do, uh, one more verse. Revelation 1.8, Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. For Jesus to make a claim like that, he would have had to be a lunatic, a liar, or who he said he was. The living Lord God who took on human flesh that he might become our Savior. There is no middle ground. You cannot say, oh, Jesus was a great teacher. He's not left that option open to us. He is either God in human flesh or a lunatic. That's the choices that are before us. To make the kind of claims that he made. Not only did he claim to be the Almighty, but in his humanity, during his incarnation, the works that he did, the words that he said, the miracles that he performed, all of these things he did, and just to, to make sure you got, we got the point, he walked on water. I mean, you know, it doesn't get any better than that. And then, of course, after his death, three days later, he rose from the dead. And there is enough witnesses to his resurrection to verify once and for all that Jesus rose from the dead. How does one verify historical facts? The only way is through eyewitnesses. You can't put historical facts into an, a test tube and test it empirically. You have to depend on witnesses. And there are more and better witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ than that George Washington crossed the Potomac. Uh, during the Revolutionary War. Jesus Christ is who he said he was. And if he is, it places incredible demands upon our decision-making ability. Will we choose Jesus over our self-serving independence? Will we trust Jesus eternally for the salvation of our soul? 
He is who he said he was. Now, along with that, the prophesied details of Jesus' birth at Bethlehem, why are they significant? First of all, because it establishes the historicity of the birth of Jesus Christ. 600 years before Jesus was born, it was prophesied that he would be born in time, space, and history in Bethlehem. And he actually was. Second, it emphasizes the preciseness of his prophesied coming. Jesus was born in time, space, and history, exactly as prophesied 600 years previously. By the contemporaries, Isaiah and Micah, of the virgin in Bethlehem. This, furthermore, establishes his identity beyond question. A scientist, mathematician, I'm not sure who he was, using the science of probability, took eight of the 300 prophecies that were fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus Christ. 300 prophecies fulfilled precisely in the, in the coming of Jesus. But just eight of those, you just take eight of them, and apply the science of probability and the probability of, of one person fulfilling just eight of these prophecies would be one in ten to the seventeenth power. That's one with a whole truckload of zeros behind it. And so that uh, peons like me could understand it, he said, he went on to say that if you took a, a silver dollar, enough silver dollars, to cover the whole state of Texas a foot deep in silver dollars and mixed in there somewhere one that was painted green. Blindfold somebody and have them go find the green one. The chances are one in, to ten in the seventeenth power. In other words, it ain't going to happen. And not just eight, but three hundred prophecies all fulfilled precisely in the person of Jesus. Let me tell you. Jesus is who he said he was and is, who was and who is and who is to come, the Almighty. One more thing. His patience in the meantime has a purpose. Verse 3, therefore he shall give them up, referring to Israel, until, and when is that? when the remnant shall return. 2,700 years ago, the prophet Ezekiel prophesied that Israel would return from the north country, from all of the countries where they had been in discipline, dispersed into captivity and, and what they call the dispersion. But there would come a day when God would draw them back. And you and I are living in that day, 2,700 years later, already 7 million Jews have returned to the promised land, to Israel. And let me tell you, John Kerry, uh, Barack Obama, and a whole bunch of other world leaders need to understand that they're not going to be displaced. They're there to stay because they're coming the direction of God in fulfillment to another of his prophecies. 
I want to read for you uh, my favorite uh, prophecy of the return of Israel is found in Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 24. Then I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. And they will come in, dis- in, in unbelief. I read uh, Israel Daily News daily. Nis- Israel National News daily. Uh, the Israelis by and large are a secular uh, culture. They have returned in unbelief, primarily. There's a few who believe, there always has been. In the recent uh, war with, with Hamas in Gaza, lasted 50 days. One of the generals during that war, as he rallied his men around him, he said, we're defending the land of Yahweh, our God. And boy, did he take flack for that. They're trying to, to demote him, to, to get rid of him. Sounds like a, a general in America who were to say something about Jesus. He, he'd, be out, he'd be out the door immediately. Well, it's, it's no different in Israel. They've come back in unbelief. But Ezekiel went on to say, then when they have returned, there's coming a day when I will sprinkle them with clean water and they shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols and I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. Now when's that going to happen? Soon. Very soon. The days of the Lord's return are rapidly approaching. But here is the specifics. In Zechariah chapter 12, verse 1 and then 9 and 10, Thus saith the Lord who stretched out the heavens, who lays the foundation of the earth and forms the spirit of man with him. This is who's speaking, Jesus. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Read that, Armageddon. And I will pour on the house of David and on the house of the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. And they will mourn. They will believe. They will recognize that Jesus, 2,000 years ago, came as their Messiah. And now they will recognize him and turn to him, the whole remnant of Israel that will remain. At the end of the battle of Armageddon, Jesus returns. At some point along there, he receives those who are his self, those who are his own to himself. We call that the rapture. He will bring judgment upon the nations and he will restore Israel to their land and establish his millennial kingdom for a thousand years. This has always been God's heart to redeem his people. We read in Luke 10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's God's heart. As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. 
For the past 2,000 years, God's focus has been to build his spiritual kingdom primarily through Gentile believers. But he has not forgotten his chosen people, nor has he forgotten his covenant promises to them. That's why I recognize, as I know most of you do, the returning Jews to the promised land as a part of God's fulfilling his covenant promise to Israel. When Jesus comes again, he will remove the church to glory, judge the godless, and restore Israel to their land. Verse 4 of of Micah 5. And he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and shall abide For now, meaning then, he shall be great to the ends of the earth. God's time clock for Israel turns back on the 70th week of Daniel. For those of you that are conversant in Old Testament prophecy, understand as the tribulation, the seven years preceding the return of the Lord in his millennial reign, God's time clock for Israel begins to click again. And after the seven years, uh, I, I just I have time, I hope, to, to share this with you. In the Islamic writings, I think it's called the Surah, they have an eschatology, a doctrine of end times. They believe that the twelfth Iman, Iman, the hidden Mahdi, Uh, is their Messiah, and that he is coming again. And when he does, he is going to establish a seven-year treaty with Israel. Does that sound familiar? Afterwards, he's going to destroy the Jewish people. He's going to break the covenant and destroy the, the Jewish people. The Bible teaches that the Antichrist is coming and he is going to establish a covenant with Israel for seven years. And during the last half of that covenant, he's going to try to destroy Israel. You see the counterfeit? But it gets even more interesting. The The book of Revelation teaches that when the Antichrist comes, there's going to be a false prophet who will try to get the whole world to worship the Antichrist. And... Uh, in the uh, Islamic theology, the, the uh, hidden Mahdi is going to s- establish his kingdom in Jerusalem. The Bible says the Antichrist is going to come and he's going to set up his image in the temple in Jerusalem. Now here's the, here's the good part. <clears throat> when, the, when the hidden Mahdi comes and establishes his kingdom, there's Jesus is going to return to earth. The Jesus that the Islamic teach in the Quran, Jesus did not die on the cross. That was Judas. Jesus didn't die for our sins, and he wasn't raised from the dead. He was ascended to heaven. In Islam, there is no atonement. There's no sacrifice for sin. To go to paradise, it's through doing good works 
or jihad, as we're all becoming familiar. This Jesus is going to come, and he's the equivalent of the, of the false prophet that we speak of in, in, uh, in Revelation. This Jesus is going to come, and he's going to find documents, manuscripts, near the Sea of Galilee, and from them he's going to teach Christians that they've been wrong all this time, and that they are to worship the Antichrist, who will be the hidden Mahdi, they think. What our Bible tells us, that their, their hidden Mahdi is going to turn on them and destroy Islam as well. I, I just find it fascinating that uh, that kind of theology so counterfeits what the Bible teaches about Messiah, who will come, destroy Antichrist at the end of, of the Battle of Armageddon, and set up his millennial kingdom also in their theology is that there will be a, 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 a chaos like the Battle of Armageddon that will bring the hidden Mahdi. Uh, it's fascinating to see the deception. It could very well be that the end-time religion, predominant religion, will be Islam. Very, very, very likely. When Jesus does come and establish his millennial kingdom, it says... He shall stand and feed his flock. And we read in the New Testament in John 10, as the good shepherd, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. I have come that they may have life and that they may, that they may have it more abundantly. <clears throat> in the majesty of the name of the Lord, I think the parallel is as the chief shepherd 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4 says, When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. And he shall be great to the ends of the earth. As the great shepherd we read in Hebrews 13, 20, And may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then we read the last or excuse me, the first phrase of verse 5, and this one shall be peace. Isaiah 9, 6 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. How many times have you heard it? There will be no peace until the Prince of Peace comes. And that is exactly correct. Until then, Jesus said, there will be wars and rumors of wars, and they will increase and become more intense as the time draws near. Brethren, I believe we are in that period of time called the period of birth pangs. The wars and rumors of wars, the earthquakes in various places, and so on, are getting closer and closer together. I believe the, the end is coming, I believe, in the next generation or two. So why is this important to us? I want to remind you that God never, 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 never reneges on a promise. It's been 2,600 years. Today, Israel is returning to its land. God never reneges on his promise. And God is in control no matter what the circumstance may look like. So trust him. God is always good. 
God is always faithful. God is always present in the life of his own, no matter how it may look. So trust him. This Christmas season, many of you are experiencing great joy. Some of you, nostalgia, and others, sadness and sorrow. We all come to Christmas in many situations. But whatever the situation, the only hope is Christ. Do you know him? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you that he is who he said he was. I thank you that all the prophecies were fulfilled precisely. In every way, Jesus documented his identity. And the Lord Jesus came because we had sinned and were separated from a holy God. But God, in your love, you sent the Lord Jesus to die for our sin, to pay that penalty for us. So that through faith, if we placed our trust in you and you alone, we'd be born again, made new creatures in Christ with a destiny that is out of this world. Father, I pray for every person here this morning that they would wrestle with the issue of who Jesus is and that, Lord, in your mercy and your grace, you would reveal to them the importance of bowing the knees of their heart to Jesus and making him Lord and Savior of their life and eternal existence. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.